it is so ironical, especially in a Hindu culture, which celebrates cow motherhood to also celebrate dairy farming, which is actually fundamentally based on the breakdown of motherhood. Dairy farming cannot sustain unless the phenomenon of motherhood is fundamentally broken down. Welcome to The Deal with Animals. I'm Marika Bell, anthrozoologist, CPDT certified dog trainer, and an animal myself. This is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. We haven't listened to the full theme music for The Deal with Animals in so long that I just want to play it for my own happiness during this episode. So if you want to skip through it, I totally understand. It's an awesome theme song, but it is two minutes long. So just go ahead and skip ahead to the interview if you prefer. I love this question. What's the deal with animals? <laughs> what do I think is the deal with animals? I think the deal with animals, I, for one, I think is off. They're awesome. do you think is the deal with animals? In today's episode, we're continuing our discussion about animals and the divine. But first, a quick reminder. I'll be giving two shout-outs in the middle of this episode for a couple of folks I met at the HSUS Animal Care Expo in New Orleans 2023. These folks not only listened to me and my co-presenter for over an hour and a half, but they also came up at the end and told me how many times I said enthusiasm in a single talk. So listen up for those shout outs and check out their organizations when you get a chance. And if you're interested in starting your own podcast and you're in the animal welfare and animal advocacy space, reach out to thedealwithanimals.com and sign up for my newsletter for more information. Today, we'll be talking to Yamini Narayanan an Associate Professor of International and Community Development at Deakin University, Melbourne. Her work explores the ways in which animals are instrumentalized in various ideologies in India. Her newest work, Mother Cow, Mother India, was published in 2023 and is the primary focus for today's discussion. This award-winning researcher simply blew my mind as we discussed cows and, more pertinently, dairy in the Hindu religion. What does it mean for a cow to be sacred, or any other animal for that matter? What do our mothers owe us by bringing us into this world, and how does that relate to Mother Cow in India? We're going to explore questions and listen to the stories around the Hindu religion. Thank you for joining me as we continue to ask the question, what's the deal with animals? Would you please introduce yourself and share your pronouns? Thanks for inviting me to speak on this podcast, Marita. My name is Yamini Narayanan. I'm an academic based at Deakin University in Melbourne. And my work focuses on the political status of animals in Indian politics specifically. And I'm also interested in how Indian politics has invoked the sacred status of animals in, in Hinduism, particularly in order to sort of advance political agendas. My pronouns are she and her. And I really look forward to the rest of the conversation with you. Great. Yeah. So... I was sort of brushing up on the paper that you wrote that was particularly about, I guess I will let you explain it because I probably don't have enough 
understanding the concept yet to really like what is succinctly. So go ahead. All right. So what I was trying to do with my intervention into looking at the nexus between animals and Hindu religion specifically was actually motivated in significant part by the current state of politics in India. Currently, we have a very authoritarian, conservative government in India, which mobilizes Hinduism as a separationist identity, which mobilizes the idea of India as a Hindu state. And one of the many strategies that they are using to apply, you know, their the Hindutva agenda, Hindutva basically means the sort of Hinduness as a political identity for the nation itself, right? Mm -hmm. To sort of remake a secular republic that India is currently into a Hindu republic. So they have many strategies to try and achieve this end. But one of them is the invocation and instrumentalization of the idea of the cow as a sacred figure, as a sacred mother, the idea of cow's milk being very important to India is a Hindu nation, but India is a developmental nation as well, you know, relevant to India's development politics, poverty politics, and, you know, as a means of livelihood, daring is really important. But also the ways in which milk is also mobilized to identify and create a Hindu state. So I was really interested in examining what the theological origins of the idea of the cow as a mother, because the way it's being invoked in political Hinduism is to talk about cows as the mother of Hindus, basically, and it's used as an othering strategy, right? So the cow is a mother of Hindus, so cow slaughter is largely prohibited in most of India. India is still a secular state, so we don't have a national ban on cow slaughter, but individual states, I think about 28 or 29 states, have prohibited the slaughter of cows. And yet, we are our largest dairy producing country because, as I said, dairy is also really important in Hindu theological beliefs. So I was really interested in trying to probe deeper into the theological significance of the cow as a mother. Because we know how it is being widely bandied and, and advanced and instrumentalized in politics. But what does it actually mean? What does theology and scriptures, what do they actually say about the idea of the cow as a mother? The idea of one of Hinduism's most prominent gods, Krishna being a great lover of cows who was also raised in a dairy farm. What is the theological significance around these sorts of iconic stories? And what is the significance behind the idea of milk is sacred, hmm. right, in Hinduism? So I wanted to probe deeper because milk is a political commodity, milk is a commercial commodity, but what is the theological significance? And I thought this was an important way for us to kind of probe deeper into how theology can be politicized. So there is yeah. a difference there. You know, in yeah. religion as a theological construct and religion as a political construct. Right. Because if the Hindu religion is seeing cows as a sacred animal and they're treated that way, I'm assuming for the most part in India, mm -hmm. then how does that coincide also with how they're treated in a dairy farm? So, my understanding of dairy farms, at least in the West, is that it's very industrialized for the most part and baby cows are removed fairly early from their parents often used for veal and the mothers are kept pregnant regularly in order to keep their milk producing well mm. and so then those babies are regularly then taken away from them right it, this does not seem the way you would treat your mother <laughs> exactly <laughs> Well, so so this is where this gets really interesting. You raised a number of really, really important and interesting points here. One is, what does it mean to treat an animal as sacred? Because yeah. in farming, we talk about treating animals humanely. What does it talk about treating animals as sacred? Though? Right? Is there a distinction between humane and sacred? Do they necessarily mean the same thing? Because we assume that treating an animal as sacred and treating an animal in a humane way probably only overlaps with each other. Hmm. That's the implicit suggestion, right? What does it mean? Because sacrality is an anthropocentric, human-centric concept. Sacred doesn't mean anything to animals other than humans, mm -hmm. right? So sacrality, I think one of the major sort of learnings for me from investigating in this field for so long is that sacrality basically is also a form of objectification, right? And objectification fundamentally, unless it is consensual, is actually profused with violence. So, for example, there is a lot of 
angst and debate in child rights NGOs in India about treating underage children as sacred. Okay. So there were, I mean, historically and even contemporaneously underground, there are lots of traditions and rituals that treat young premenstrual girls as goddesses, living alive premenstrual girls as goddesses. Okay. So the entire life is given over to being a sacred goddess until they achieve menstruation. And basically their lives are anything but what we would imagine a young child's life to be. Right? So there is a particular form of objectification that takes place when you treat a living being as sacred. And when it is non-consensual, it is a violation. So what does it mean to treat a cow as sacred? And here as well, implicitly, we are treating a lactating cow as sacred. Okay? Because... If you look at Hindu scriptures, they are profuse with ideas of Kamadenu. Kamadenu, the mythological sacred cow. Surabi as well is a mythological sacred cow. And if you look at the theological visions, the theological versions of these sacred cows, they are rotated around the idea of an extremely effectively lactating, profusely lactating cow. Okay. Mm. So the sacralization is very much entwined with them being dairy cows, with them producing cows for dairy. Right? So, like Kamadenu, like if you look at the scriptures, what the scriptures actually, how they describe Kamadenu, the cow, I am going to actually read you some of the ways in which the scriptures describe the cow, yeah? The extent of the cow's veneration as a lactating mother, all right, is very clear in the scriptures from the way her other itself is objectified. So, I'm quoting here, so quotes, that the great cow with exhaustless udder pouring a thousand streams give milk to feed us. And then again, I'm quoting here, the cow's udder within quotes is pure. It's heavenly, and I'm quoting here again, it swells with lordly nectar. The cow's milk is nutritious, brightly shining, all sustaining. So milk is a symbol of motherhood. The milk is sacred. Her sacrality is attached to the milk, which is also sacred. The cow's sacrality is not in a vacuum. The cow's sacrality is very much attached to the commodity that she produces, which is also sacred. Right. Right? So in this situation... We are worshipping the cow, the lactating cow who is producing this voluminous amount of milk for human progeny. When the cow is my mother, the implicit thing about claiming mothership or claiming a mothering relationship with the female being is right to her lactate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so right to her breast milk. So in this situation, the cow being a mother automatically grants the human right to her milk. It actually entrenches and deepens dairy farming. Interesting. It's the basis for entrenching and deepening dairy farming. It doesn't separate the cow from dairy farming. It actually makes the cow more vulnerable to dairy farming. Because the cow is firstly my mother, so I have a right to her milk. But the milk is sacred, and that makes the cow sacred. Or the right. cow is sacred, and therefore her milk is sacred. But, they, but these are so tightly intertwined that the cow's status as sacred entrenches the cow more deeply into dairy farming. Okay. There are Hindus who will even consume cow's milk, but won't consume necessarily buffalo milk or goat milk because it's the cow's milk which is sacred, which basically means the cow is more and more deeply entrenched in dairy farming. Now, when you get to dairy farming itself, by its fundamental nature, dairy farming cannot be different in India to the West or anywhere else. Fundamentally, you have to separate the calf from the cow. You have to repeatedly impregnate the animal. Maternity is actually produced with risks. Pregnancy is profuse with risks. These risks have been eliminated or at least largely reduced for humans. So we actually tend to forget the extent to which pregnancy can be profuse with risks. In fact, the leading cause of death in a dairy farm is maternal mortality. Maternal mortality is largely defined as the death of the mother within 24 hours of delivery, which happens all the time in a dairy farm. It is, in fact, the leading cause of death in a dairy farm because obviously cows don't get the pregnancy care that is required to sustain a healthy pregnancy. And especially when you're being impregnated year after year after year, pregnancy complications and, you know, the dairy farms don't have the, don't have the resources to account for pregnancy complications. It is a maternity ward. The dairy farm is basically a maternity ward. That remains the case, whether it is in India or not, whether you think of the cow as sacred or not. So with the sacred status of the cow, the cow is more deeply entrenched into the precarities, risks and vulnerabilities of being a dairy animal. It doesn't remove the cow from being a dairy animal. It doesn't save the cow from being a dairy animal. So when we think about what does it mean to treat an animal as sacred or to treat particularly a farmed animal as sacred, whose product also in regard as sacred 
it is actually deepening their status as a production entity. So to treat them as sacred is actually a process of commodification here. The Mm -hmm. sacred is not inherent. My idea of something sacred is something you treat better than other things. You order it to have more rights and more more care Mm -hmm. than something that is not sacred. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to really be not at all what what this idea of sacred is. What the idea of sacred does is it basically whitewashes the harms and the risks to the cow in much the same way as humane narratives do. Right? So you ask a Hindu who goes to a Gaushala. A Gaushala is an interesting site which is commonly thought of as cow sanctuaries, but they also function as dairy farms. Okay? So which is where the idea of producing, the cows producing sacred milk, and this milk is oftentimes diverted to temples who use it as a sacred commodity in ritual Hinduism. You know, you pour it into the fire, you pour it on top of idols, etc. Now you go to a Hindu who goes to a Gaushala and ask them about their veneration of the cow, of the living cow. And I think they will be quite shocked at the idea that dairy farming per se is profuse with violence at all. And this is not different to what the average person knows or doesn't know that this state of ignorance about what dairy farming involves is generally common. It's not that the Hindu necessarily has greater knowledge of dairy farming. If anything, it is probably obscured even more because of these sorts of narratives of the cow as sacred, the cow as, you know, garnering more respect from us, more love, more care, reverence. You're treating an animal with reverence. I mean, how can that possibly be a bad thing? So these sorts of narratives actually obscure the realities of dairy farming even more. So the idea of the sacred cow actually works very similarly to the idea of treating an animal humanely per se Mm -hmm. in in farming, right? As narratives, what they do is obscure, they blur, and they just sort of lessen the impact of what really goes on in the name of farming. So your paper argues that religion can actually help shape a more ethical and sustainable food practice. So... Can you expand on that? How would you see that working? So, I mean, the thing is that animals are so deeply intertwined with our identities, too. It's not just that we consume animals or animal products. This act of consumption is also really deeply intertwined with our identities. So religion is obviously a very, very solid and a very meaningful pathway of identity. So to kind of reverse or to kind of address this becomes really important. Like how can we sort of rethink identities with animals that have particular types of meaning attached in religion? And this was really foundational while thinking about the cow in India, just, you know, because of the sacred status of the cow is so widespread, so institutionalized, so deeply entrenched in Hindu culture that it is actually quite a central question about the whole notion of Hinduism, identity, and cows. Right. The cow is so central to the Hindu human identity per se that investigating this and probing this further became really important. So, of course, the political narratives around the cow is our mother. The cow must not be slaughtered. We have a right to the cow's milk because she's our mother. All of these things were obviously very shrill and, and loud and obvious in Hindu political discourses and Hindu nationalistic discourses. But I became really curious about what do the actual original scriptures have to say? Mm. Right. And one of the major ways in which the cow's identity as our mother and as our lactating mother solidified is through the idea of Krishna, who loved cows, who was raised, so to speak, by cows. He was raised in a dairy farm. The calves were his brothers. So so this idea of the Krishna, who's one of Hinduism's most beloved gods, as basically sanctioning this idea of not only the cow is, a, is our mother, because the cow was Krishna's mother, but Krishna was also obsessed with, you know, dairy. He, he loved his milk and he loved his cream and his ghee and whatever. So it basically also allows us or permits us to sort of relate to cow products in the same way. So I wanted to probe this further, right? And what I realized was that Krishna's story echoes the story of a dairy cow in really eerily similar ways, right? So Krishna was born in a jail that was actually intended to be his slaughterhouse. 
So the backstory here is that Krishnas had an evil uncle, Kamsa, who wanted to claim his kingdom. So he arrested and put in jail his sister and, and her husband. So, you know, the next in line to the throne was the sister's child. And he basically put his pregnant sister and her husband in jail. So, you know, he could just kill the infant as soon as the infant was born because he wanted to preserve his own right to the throne. Mm-hmm. And even though it is predicted that it will be the seventh child of Devaki, his sister, who will claim the throne, Hamsa, the uncle, is just freaked out. He's obsessed. So it's her first six children who are born in jail, he basically smashes their heads against the wall, right? So there is like red splotches all along the jail. Now, this is also very similar to what goes on in a dairy farm. Usually, calves are oftentimes just bashed against the wall as soon as they're born because a male calf is useless. But in this case, also, the male calf was a threat. Particularly useless, actually. Now, I'm thinking about it in in India where cow's milk generally isn't eaten. In the U.S., a lot of the baby male cows are taken for veal and raised in in veal crates and and that sort of thing. But yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. There'd be no use for a male calf, would there? Not legally, no. Illegally, absolutely. There's a thriving underground veal industry in India. There's a thriving beef industry in India. India is one of the largest producers and exporters of beef. And we don't say anything about veal. India's production status as a leading beef producer is well known. It's well documented. But veal actually zipped up about our veal production. Because unlike beef, beef you can produce at, in, in, in the West as well. There are cows are reared specifically for beef. So there is some sort of an ontological separation between dairy and beef. Because globally, cows are reared separately for beef and separately for milk, right? Right. But real always comes from male cows, male dairy calves. Right. So in India too... We have a thriving wheel industry. Where do they come from? They come from the cows. And they come from the calves who have been separated from their mother. That narrative is going to open a huge big can of worms. So we don't even talk about wheel. But India has a thriving wheel industry underground. Interesting. Might even be estimated to be one of the largest in the world, given just our scale of dairy production. So it actually would be one of the largest in the world. But of course, we are zipped up and silent about it. So the jail functions as a slaughterhouse. And Krishna as well is, you know, intended for slaughter as soon as he's born. But according to the epics and the scriptures, you know, he's smuggled out of jail by his father in time. And as soon as he's born, within minutes of his birth, he's smuggled out of the jail from, by his father. And he's quickly taken to safety in a dairy farm. Okay. And he's raised by an adoptive mother, Yashoda. But he's also raised by the cows. So what happens with Krishna's story is that he also experiences separation from his mother, from his birth mother, immediately after birth. Mm. Now, Krishna's obsessive attachment to lactate, to dairy products, is just seen as something, you know, that we see with a, with a lot of indulgent affection. Oh my God, he loves his dairy. You know, the way you would look indulgently as a child that loves, you know, chocolate or whatever. It's often regarded with that sort of indulgent affection. Mm. Well, what we don't potentially consider is that this obsessive attachment to breast milk, it is obsessive. It is unnatural. He will do anything to get it. That could be a sign of trauma from experiencing separation so quickly from his mother. Right? Sounds very Freudian. Yeah, but it's also oftentimes a reality in dairy farms. never see this happen with calves because calves, as you say, are routed into the veal industry almost immediately. But with, with young cows who have also been separated quickly from their mother, you will still see them trying to suckle each other. They will suckle each other. They will suckle, you know, calves will suckle other calves because they're so frantic for breast milk. And not just breast milk, but the comfort that comes from that. Exactly, exactly. So the emotional comfort, the psychological comfort that comes from that, they will also do anything to get it. And that is a sign of trauma. Sometimes you will see grown cows trying to suckle. Like this is a fairly common sight in dairy farms. You will see grown cows trying to suckle from each other. You will see, you know, suckling their ears, suckling their tail, suckling their own tail sometimes. And the fact that Krishna's obsessive attachment could be a sign of trauma is something that we rarely consider. And it's not just Krishna's attachment to trauma. In Hindu mythology and in Hindu popular religious representations of the story, Krishna's attachment to his mothers, which are both the cows as well as Yashoda, his adoptive mother, 
this is the only celebration of his motherhood that is popularly known and celebrated. His birth mother, Devaki, is uncomfortable to even think about. So his mm. birth mother, Devaki, is almost entirely obscured from all celebrations of Krishna. You know, we are on festivals, we have popular songs that celebrate Krishna and, you know, the love between Krishna and Yashoda, his adoptive mother. We don't hear one single sentence about his birth mother because the fact of the birth mother is uncomfortable. We, we, we don't want to know what happens to the birth mother. However, much later in the Mahabharata, one of Hinduism's great epics, we do get a little glimpse of what happens to his birth mother, who is as though she's bereft, who is as though she has quite literally lost her children to death. Right. She's a shadow and she's a shred of her former self. She who should be celebrated for having given birth to Krishna is a shadow. Right? But these are things we don't want to think about in popular celebrations, which right. celebrate Krishna's great love for Yashoda, great love for the cows, and the conduit of this great love is milk in both cases. Interesting. So how is breastfeeding your own baby seen in India? Is it generally that you breastfeed your own children in India, or is there more of a push for bottle feeding and formula feeding? That's a really, really good question, actually. So in India, by and large, breastfeeding is very much the norm. So it was in the 1950s and 1960s that dairy farming really became formalized. And by formalized, I mean what we have in India is, is largely informal, small-scale dairy farms. Okay? But the state started to recognize the importance of dairy farming, not for nutrition necessarily, but as a poverty alleviation program. Because it gives people a livelihood. In fact, Indian dairy farming is the world's largest rural employer. So there became a need to sort of formalize dairy farming in some way through a cooperative system where, as I said, Indian farming is very small scale. People have two, three calves or, you know, a large scale farm might have 15, 16 cows. And what this basically means, and of course, we don't have a free ranging system. So these cows are tied all the time. But what this basically means is that as an owner of, let's say, three or four cows, I will milk them and then I will bring the milk every day to this cooperative center and then I will get paid a certain amount. Mm -hmm. Right, which, is, which sustains my livelihood. But when dairy farming started to be formalized, many things started to happen. One was the whole concept of value-added products, right? Because it is not just raw milk that gets sold. You have to have value-added products, such as, you know, ghee or cream or butter or ice cream or whatever it is. And one of the value-added products was infant formula. Mm -hmm. But they had to approach this with a lot of sensitivity because at that time, Something like 95% of infants in India were breastfed, right? So they had to approach this with a lot of sensitivity to ensure that what was being suggested was not that women's milk were, was inferior and therefore you needed infant formula. Right. So this kind of continues to be the case. So infant formula hasn't taken off the weight it has in China. China is one of the largest producers and consumers of infant formula. In India, while the market is growing, it is still not as huge as it could be. I mean, the scale of it is just huge just because India is a country of a billion point three people. But proportionately, it is still a much smaller market because breastfeeding is still seen as central to motherhood in India. Okay. Interesting. But not for farmed animals, of course. Right. Not for farmed animals. No. It is really interesting because there are so many different animals in the Hindu pantheon, aren't there? Mm. The deities are a mixture of human and animal, human and other animal, I would say. Some of them are just animals. So it is really interesting to see how India relates to all of these animals. You know, I would say not all are considered sacred. Yeah. So Hinduism actually regards all life as sacred. Okay. Right? right. We have a tradition of worshipping trees and plants. So you go to rural India now and you will still find women worshipping banyan trees and neem trees because neem trees have medicinal value mm -hmm. and they have life-giving value. They're seen as giving, you know, life-enhancing and life-giving properties. So fundamentally, all life is actually seen as sacred in Hinduism. So, there, so this sort of fetishization of a particular life form such as a cow is actually quite a modern development because... Religions link with capitalism have been noted for a very long time because religion can be appropriated to sell. Right. Religion can be appropriated 
for neoliberalism, for capitalism. I mean, we have long had this history of criticisms of the church in the Western tradition for the amounts of money that they attract. It's the same in, in, you know, some of the iconic Hindu temples in India are extraordinarily wealthy. So there is a really strong nexus between religion and capitalism. But of course, there isn't necessarily a capitalist value to be achieved from every animal, right? Or from every living being that you consider sacred. The certain sacred life forms can be monetized. And the cow is, of course, an iconic one to monetize, right? So... It's, it's really interesting because it's not the non-sacred status of certain other animals leaves them free. Like if you take the buffalo, okay, I mean, the buffalo also is regarded as sacred for many communities in India, but not by Hindu purists, for example. They wouldn't see the buffalo as sacred. Th that only means that the buffalo is as vulnerable or even more vulnerable to exploitation because you don't even need to give the kind of surface level consideration that you give the cow. Right. It's it's a, it's a free for all because the, the, the buffalo is, is not our mother. We don't need to care as much. OK, so the buffalo is not our mother. The buffalo is also not as noble. The buffalo doesn't have noble qualities. The buffalo is therefore not so attached to her calf either. So we have these sorts of almost racial ways of relating to the animal. OK, so the buffalo is black. The cow is typically white. And these sorts of racial connotations are actually even clear in the scriptures as well. So the sacred cow, Surabi and Kamadenu in Hinduism are often described to be white cows. Right. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I mean, the sacred status of the animal you think would offer some protection, but it doesn't. And once you come to understand that the sacred status of the animal actually deepens their vulnerability, you might then be tempted to think, oh, well, the non-sacred status of the other animals probably leaves them free up, but that's not the case either. So either way, it's a question of mobilizing narratives to a very clear end to commodify, to, to, to capitalize. Do you think that if this was more understood within Indian society, it would change? That's another real and really deep and important question. It's interesting because, I mean, fundamentally, the question here is, if we know the realities of dairy farming, will we change? Mm -hmm in human society, which is pretty much anyway. But in India, what we are additionally asking is to really rethink the additional narrative that we have been so used to for so far that cows are mother and therefore we have a right to her milk. And in Hinduism, the cow is being sort of amplified as the mother of humans, mother of all life, mother of the universe, to the extent that her actual biological infant is probably the most obscured aspect of her motherhood. So it's going to take a lot of radical imagination and that work must be done to actually rethink, to sort of rehaul this entire idea of the cow is our mother. I mean, I think in my work, ultimately, I make a very simple fundamental claim that the cow is not our mother and which actually goes against a lot of our animal studies scholarship, which actually celebrates the idea of kinship. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of anthropological animal studies work, especially arising out of Western scholarship that celebrates the idea of kinship. Okay. And fundamentally, it's a noble idea that, you know, you think of other animals as our kin. You think of other animals as our family members. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's no difference. You just sort of expand the idea of kin and family to multi-species line rather than, you know, limiting it to what we think of as family or as kin. But I think the Indian case exposes how this idea of kinship and motherhood can be exploited in such eviscerating ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can't just assume that if people understand this idea of kinship and agree to it, that it will actually change anything for the better for other animals. No, and especially the idea of the mother is perhaps the most dangerous relational idea of kinship because the mother fundamentally has this sort of connotation. Even taking a step back from cow motherhood, the idea of motherhood is associated with ideas of self-sacrifice, mm -hmm. okay? It's associated with the idea of self-denial because, you know, as a mother, you would do anything for your children. You project that to the cow, the cow will do anything for her children, which is probably very true if it was her calf, but you're projecting that idea onto us. Right. So this was in a Gaushana that I, and I talk about this in my book, and I talk about this in some of my papers as well, where I saw a cow once having a fit 
in a, in a dairy farm. Like she was literally having a fit. And I later asked the manager, I said, what's wrong with the cow? And he goes, oh, nothing to worry about. He's, and she was actually rescued from the slaughterhouse, but she was, she was taken back into the dairy farm to perform the, the labor of milking and pregnancy and lactation again. And he goes, oh yeah, we milk her. And then she fits for half an hour and then, and then it's fine. And I asked him, I said, why do you keep getting her pregnant then? If she's clearly not able to handle it. And he said, oh, she can handle it. She's a mother. She can handle anything. Hmm. So the idea of the mother is just used to, as an exploitative mechanism for what the idea of the motherhood can offer. The, what the idea of the motherhood can offer is commoditized, is capitalized, and it becomes a means of exploitation. And, you know, we talk about not just the human mother, but the cow mother as well as a self-sacrificing mother. Right. But this is what I'm saying is that this relationship is non-consensual. So in Western scholarship, we have a lot of really important and good literature on how fundamentally there is a non-consensual sexual relationship between the human and the farmed animal. Okay. In artificial insemination, you grab the cow, artificially inseminate, you grab the bull, you know, forcibly extract semen. In, you know, semen extraction is its own sort of horror story, which is very rarely talked about in dairy farming because the dairy farming is generally associated with the female animal. But what the bulls undergo, the bulls designated as stunt bulls, what they undergo for semen extraction for years on end is actually a very unknown part of the violences of dairying per se. So a lot of critical animal studies scholarship does talk about this sort of non-consensual sexual relationship mm -hmm. that we have with the non-human animal. But in India, we have a non-consensual maternal relationship. If it is true, and it is not something that I would necessarily question that a mother would self-sacrifice and do whatever is needed for her child, but it becomes problematic when I make a claim that is non-consensual of another female saying, oh, hey, mother, therefore you will do whatever is needed for me. If the female hasn't agreed to that, right? So there's a non-consensual yeah. maternal relationship that is being imposed on the cow. In addition to a non-consensual sexual relationship, which is just inherent dual farming anyway. What a place for a break, huh? Before we continue on with this episode, I've got two more shout outs for you today from the Animal Care Expo that I attended and spoke at in New Orleans in early April, 2023. The first is Fawn Ward, who is the Behavior and Enrichment Coordinator for the Animal Protection Association in Olivet, Missouri. The APA is dedicated to bringing people and pets together, advancing humane education, and creating programs beneficial to the human-animal bond. APA is doing amazing work finding homes for animals and supporting families. Among many of its programs are spay-neuter operations, classroom initiatives, senior services, and an on-site clinic. The next shout-out is to Andrea Cornett, Director of Operations at Humane Society of Yuma, Arizona whose mission is to reduce the number of homeless pets through adoption, rescue, and spay-neuter programs. The Humane Society of Yuma has been an integral part of their community since 1963. They have a wealth of programs and events, so definitely go and check them out. Thank you both to Andrea and Falm, I hope I pronounced your name right, for attending my talk, How to Share Your Message Using a Podcast, and I can't wait to get started with you, hopefully, making your podcast. So do you think that there is a place that religion can help animals in the Hindu religion in particular, but maybe in other religions as well? Yeah, I think so. And this was actually what was so revealing to me when I looked at some of Hinduism's mythologies and legends and popular stories around, you know, milk or around cows, right? And one of them was for me what we commonly refer to in Hindu scriptures as the churning of the milk. Okay, so every religion has its origin stories, right, about how the world was created. And Hinduism has its own sort of origin stories. Now, as for Hinduism's origin stories, the gods and the demons realize that they have to cooperate in order for the world to actually sustain. Neither the gods nor the demons can, can, could uniquely and individually do this. They had to cooperate to, to sort of enable life forms to flourish and for this diversity of life forms to be born. So according to the story, they use a snake as a rope but they churn the ocean of milk. And as they churn the milk, what happens, this is generally what happens in value-added dairy farming. As you churn the milk, 
the milk becomes butter, the milk becomes ghee, the milk becomes cream, the milk becomes more and more value added. And as the milk sort of becomes thicker and thicker, ultimately the idea is that one of the products that it will produce is the juice or the elixir of immortality, right? Because both the gods and the demons want this elixir of immortality. Okay, because, you know, mortality is something that we all fundamentally fear and they wanted this elixir of immortality. And in order for this elixir to be produced, you have to sort of distill the milk and churn the milk to its purest form. And the ultimate purest form would be the milk. But as the milk is churning, a lot of life forms begin to sort of grow, including the cow, including other life forms, etc. And, and this is, you know, one of Hinduism's popular origin stories. And so, you know, for milk is the foundation of all life, is what the common person would take away from it. Milk is founds life, produces life, leads to immortality, and therefore the milk is really important. So this is what the common person would take away from the story. So I wanted to probe the story a little bit more. Now, the great epic Mahabharata talks about this story in a really different way. And this is also sort of recalling the Upanishads as well in a different way. In the story, yes, the gods and the demons cooperate to start churning the milk. But the milk, the ocean waters, actually mix with the herbs and the plants that are surrounding the water. Mm -hmm. So what you have is the churning of the ocean waters with these sorts of sacred plants and sacred herbs. And you have these various trees, all of which are sort of used in this churning. Okay. And as it churns, as the water becomes milky and milkier because of churning with all these trees and herbs and plants, it becomes milkier and milkier and it becomes butter, it becomes ghee, it becomes, you know, gold, it becomes elixir, etc. through the churning. But the origins here are, is vegan. It's a vegan milk. It's a plant-based vegan milk. It's actually not cow's milk at all. Right, because it, the cows weren't around yet, right? No, no, the cows weren't. So it was actually from the sap from the mountains mixed with the water from the sea. And I'm, I'm quoting here, sap from the plants from the mountains mixed with water from the sea. And as the swirling progressed, the ocean water turned to milk. And from this rich congealed mass emerged the sun, the moon, the stars, along with Surabi, the cow of plenty. Okay, it all emerged from this intermingling of ocean water and trees and plants and herbs. So it's like vegan plant-based milk, which is the original sacred milk in Hinduism. Is there a word for milk then that was mistranslated? Is there a different word that should be used instead of the word milk? Or is milk understood in this context to, because it's a life-sustaining force, mm. as is breast milk, it's the same essential thing. The argument that, that milk producers are, you know, oat milk, coconut milk, that dairy producers generally are arguing about, right, that vegan milks shouldn't be called milks. That's right. Because they aren't truly breast milk. Yeah. So is there another word that we should be using, do you think? The word that is used in the description of these origin stories is still milk. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that these stories were rendered, translated and narrated in times when dairy farming was already normative. Mm -hmm. So we use the word milk because the consistency of the water churning with the plants and trees and herbs was milky. It became milkier and milkier. We know that vegan milk can also produce butter and cream mm -hmm. and all of that. So the milkiness just was a word that was commonly used across religious translations and as you note also in, you know, farming contexts, right? So I think these religious stories were actually narrated at least or handed over in contexts where dairy farming was generally already the norm. Maybe not in the industrialized ways that we have now, mm -hmm. but it wasn't new by then because right. the cow did come out of this churning as well. And the right. cow comes shooting jets of milk from her udders. Hmm. So the, the churning of the milk did produce the cow but it also produced all other life forms as well. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, is there any other aspect to this that you would want to talk about? Well, what I'd like to sort of highlight and bring forth a little bit more is a bit of is a, is a somewhat of a sobering story on the bulls of dharma. So the bulls of dharma is another logical stories that is common in Hinduism and the bull or the cow it depends on you know different forms of representation the same story 
But the bull or the cow represents dharma in Hinduism. Dharma meaning duty, dharma meaning right action, dharma meaning ethical action. So the whole idea of ethical action itself is represented by the cow, right? And each of its four legs represents one particular aspect of dharma. Okay, so whether it is the truth, whether it is integrity, I mean, each of the four feet of the bull or the cow represents a particular aspect of dharma. According to Hindu narrations of the world, of, of life cycles, because, you know, the Hindu concept of time is not cyclical. It, it is not linear. It is cyclical, right? There's reincarnation, there is rebirth, etc. So through this time cycle, the bull loses each foot as human integrity and morality declines. And currently we are in the Kali Yuga, which is also known as the Dark Age, right? Where the bull is basically now standing on one foot. Each of these four feet of the cow of the bull represents austerity, cleanliness, mercy, and truthfulness. So we have lost austerity. We have currently lost cleanliness. We have lost mercy, which I think we can see. And the very last foot that the bull is currently standing on is truthfulness. And this will also be lost in the age of the Kali. And at this point, the bull just collapses. But according to, of course, Hindu time cycles, then the regeneration begins. And we begin to sort of reclaim these values of austerity, cleanliness, mercy, and truthfulness again. Right? So it is really sobering to think that the third foot of mercy has gone. And the fourth foot, the last foot of truthfulness is lolling. And it's also really interesting because we're also living in the era of fake news and, mm -hmm. you know, whitewashing and humane washing. And there's just so much obscurity of the truth in this era of social media, incessant chatter, incessant information overload, etc. So the cow or the bull symbolized suffering, symbolized the ultimate suffering due to the breakdown of human karma or human ethical conduct which is currently in progress. The dark age is currently in progress. And once the bull collapses, then we have the pathway to the new and to a morally renewed world. So I think it is really important for us to be considering that those of us who claim to love cows as a Hindu probably should also consider that in the current time cycle, in the current age, the bull is depicted to be intensively suffering because of the laws of human virtues, of austerity, cleanliness, and mercy and truthfulness now being on a wobbly foot, quite literally. So, you know, I, I think as a practicing, as a devout Hindu, it is probably important to not just continue to make what could be now facetious claims about, oh, the cow is my mother and therefore I drink milk, but to sort of probe and reflect a little bit more deeply because the realities of dairy farm, whether you're a Hindu or not, the realities of what occurs to sustain dairying itself. Because it is so ironical, especially in a Hindu culture, which celebrates cow motherhood to also celebrate dairy farming, which is actually fundamentally based on the breakdown of motherhood. Dairy farming cannot sustain unless the phenomenon of motherhood is fundamentally broken down. Mm -hmm. Right? So, it, so this incongruity requires really deep reflection as a practicing Hindu. You know, we always talk about what does it mean to be a practicing devotee of any faith? And I think in this particular context where we are entering an age of the tipping point, you know, we talk about the Anthropocene as being a tipping point, the earth itself as being at a tipping point where there's likely to be climatic breakdowns and end of life as we know it on the planet. So we're talking constantly about the tipping point, but even in the Hindu theological imagination, we are at a tipping point. If the cow is just standing on one foot at this point, representing truth. So I think it's really important for these sorts of stories and for these sorts of reflections to come to fore, which are currently being fully obscured by the shrill Hindu narratives of cow as our mother. But it's also interesting because the, the last leg that is being represented is the truth, which is, which is being broken down. So we have to work really extra hard in order to bring back or highlight or strengthen the alternative reflections. Yeah. And stories. Yeah, it's really interesting. The idea of the four legs, does that suggest that once they're gone, they're gone? Mm -hmm. You cannot get them back again except through renewal? Yeah, so 
according to Hindu mythology, the Hindu time cycle is cyclical and it has four major time cycles, which is the Satya Yuga or the age of the truth. And then there is the silver age, the bronze age, and currently we are in the, in the dark age. And in the golden age, the cow is intact and standing on all four feet. And then through each of these ages, it loses one foot, right? And what happens when the bovine finally collapses is that the Lord comes in his final form as Kalki. And he comes to destroy the world because he's like, this is not going to work. He destroys the world. And only in destruction is there rejuvenation again. And once this world is destroyed, it starts the next great time cycle. Because Hindu time cycle is predicated on renewal, on reincarnation, how, on rebirth. How is it through the Hindu religion, if you can answer this question, understood that there is only one leg left? How is it understood in Hindu religion? Yeah. So how do we know that there is only one leg left? Are there signs? Who decides when a leg has disappeared? So that's a, that's a good question. Yeah. Currently, we believe that we are in the dark age. And also, according to astrologers, because astrologers obviously symbolize and uh, work with time cycles, okay. only one sixteenth of the dark age has passed. Mm. So the very worst is yet to come. And it's probably going to... I remember some astrological prediction about how this is going to take another couple of thousands of years. It's not imminent. Mm-hmm. But again, a few thousands of years is also very quick when you think about the time cycle of the whole planet. But what is sobering is that only one sixteenth of the time cycle has passed of the dark right. age. So we are actually looking at real darkness to come. If we want to preserve anything that's yeah. positive at this point, we need to be doing it now. And as the age passes, you know, if it is true that we are in the one, you know, we are, you know, one sixteenth of the dark age has passed, the worst is yet to come. Truth is going to become more and more and more hard to grasp. It's going to become difficult to get a hold on. And human morality, that is dharma, we need to be more dharmic in our ethical conduct in order to try and hold on to this truth. Mm -hmm. So it's actually also not coincidental, I think, that we also talk about at the same time as we are losing focus. And I think that's something perhaps that humanity across the planet can relate to, that we are losing focus, we are losing sight of what is important. Mm -hmm. This is also a time when you're talking about mindfulness and you're also talking about trying to focus, trying to sort of block out the noise and chatter in whatever form they appear, right? Because we are actually looking for going forward, a truth being lost more and more and more. So how do we distill back to something which is the truth? And of course, that's an ancient philosophical question. What is true? We don't know, but we do know, or at least we do know as per Hindu imagination, that this is being broken down and this is being blurred. So, Yamini, if there was a book you could gift to all of the listeners, and feel free to plug your own book, but also let me know (laughs) what other book you would gift to all of the listeners, what would that be? My immediate favorite book that I would distribute freely and widely, if I could, is Catherine Gillespie's The Cow with the Attack, number 1389. She talks about the realities of dairy farming in an extremely accessible way. So what I like about her book is that she is relentlessly academic and scholarly in her investigation and analysis, but in the way that she presents this is so accessible, so empathetic, and so Mm non-judgmental. So she talks about the realities of dairy farming. She focuses on the United States, but for me, it's almost a gold standard in really sound academic work and what academic work should look like in being accessible to just outside of the academic boundaries as well. So I think Katie Gillespie's book certainly influenced my own, which has just come out. It's actually just been imminently born. It's called Mother Cow, Mother India. It's been published by Stanford University Press. And it also focuses on dairy farming in the Indian context. So for me personally, as both a reader, but also a reviewer and an author, Katie's book made a great impact. And Katie's book is one that I would like to widely distribute if I could. And I'd widely recommend to our listeners here. That's excellent. And there will be a link to both of the books in the show notes as well. So oh, if you can find those there. Yeah. And would you share a early or first childhood memory of your connection with animals? My first connection with animals, um, really sad to say, was one founded on a lot of ignorance. So at the age of 10, I was gifted a pair of rabbits 
for my birthday. And it's the kind of ignorant birthday gifting that I think is quite common even today. But I received a pair of rabbits and they were all a male-female pair. So they proliferated and, you know, we had about 10 or 11 rabbits. And we donated all the rabbits at one point to the zoo. But I don't think that was a great decision at all. Looking back to what I know now about rabbits and looking back to what I know now about the realities of just, you know, you, you, I remember we, we took the rabbits in these cages and the zookeeper or the gatekeeper just opened the door and he just threw them all in, right? And I look back and think, oh my God, there would have been so many territorial disputes. I don't even know how many of them survived. And that was probably a horrible way of trying to manage that situation. But I didn't think about this. I haven't thought about this in years until I got into animal studies. Was it for the petting zoo? No, it was was a spectator zoo, you know? It wasn't the petting zoo. It was just, it was a zoo where... So were they going to use vets for for feeding other animals, do you think? I hope not. But now that you mention it, that might have happened. I mean, they were on display. So people were actually looking at the rabbits. I don't know why, though, you know, because I think we are so divorced from animals in India that even rabbit is a spectacle. Like, you know, the regular urban citizen doesn't get to see rabbits. Okay, so you want to see rabbits, you actually go to a zoo. (laughs) You know, the thing is, the realities of animals and their well-being was just so out of our regular thinking of accountability, of, you know, of our duty. I hadn't thought about these rabbits again till I got into animal studies, which was about seven or eight years ago. And then I thought about them a lot. And I had one of my lasting regrets is just not knowing, right? And what really breaks my heart is that state of not knowing continues. Like, you know, with, with people who have companion animals at home, we still could, it's, it's, it's actually very revealing and it's very sobering and it's very terrifying that we can live so closely with a non-human animal and perhaps also humans and not really see them. You know, physical proximity has nothing to do with knowing who we live with. So that, that really does break my heart. And I wish I could, if, you know, winding back time is obviously just an indulgent thinking, but if this is one thing that I would absolutely try, I'll absolutely do differently, but we didn't have the knowledge and we didn't have the capacity to care or or we didn't have the politics to care. I mean, of course we had the capacity to care, but it was just not something that was cultivated. Yeah. Yeah. I too grew up in a home where Animals were brought in as gifts sometimes, as new family members, but were not always given everything that they needed to thrive and survive. And my brother received some rabbits for, I don't know if it was for Easter or for his birthday, but he was so young. And my parents didn't know enough about rabbits to really understand what they were getting into. So I I definitely have had a very similar experience and maybe mildly traumatizing experience because my experience with animals, with rabbits, particularly breeding, was it was not. And you mentioned this before, maternity is not safe for the animal. And that is also true for rabbit. People sort of think that rabbits just produce and produce and it's very easy for them. But that was not my experience with these rabbits. And in fact... The very first you know, sign that things were going badly was yeah. one of the rabbits died. There were three rabbits. They got two boys and a girl. One of them killed the other one. And it was like, well, you know, I guess rabbits are actually kind of aggressive. And they were all in one tiny little cage. And like, yeah, yeah, we didn't know. And, no, we didn't uh, and know. I we didn't know. slowly began to work it out, what was going wrong and offering these animals a better situation. But there was plenty that I failed. And, oh, yeah. And the animals that I failed when I was a kid, I feel terrible about still. Like, they're haunting. I will be haunted by many of the animals that I failed through my childhood. And I think, like, oh, you know, you were 10. It wasn't your responsibility to know these things already. But, yeah. Animals and those were not the days of internet. We couldn't Google information. So, yeah, there was a lot of ignorance. But as I said, that ignorance continues to sustain even now. Yeah. So I think we need to work out how we can try and proliferate, need more intimate knowledge of other animals. But that's also problematic because we have also exploited intimate knowledge of other animals. Mm-hmm. You know, farming is a classic example of that. Mm-hmm. So how can we responsibly think about, you know, close intimate knowledge of animals to their benefit in ways that they can flourish is, I think, a question that we need to be 
constantly asking ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. So what do you think is the deal with animals? I think the deal with animals is that moment where we suddenly land recognition of them and with them. And that has happened to me. I think that was a turning point, a pivotal point for me in radically changing my relationship with animals was precisely this moment of recognition, of knowing. After the rabbits, my life was generally without any animals for a long time until I met my partner who came with a cat and took very quickly fall head over heels in love with the cat. But what was so extraordinary for me was that moment of recognition because that cat was a profoundly independent, autonomous, authoritarian animal. So I think that sort of recognition of his individuality was easy also just because of the specific type of individual that he was. But what that led me to sort of really open my eyes to was that all animals are individuals, right? And it became a point in my own sort of research and activism and especially working with farm animals like cows, where I went through the space of donating money to a lot of animal charities and rescues and NGOs. And I continue to do that. But for me, a crucial part of saving myself was just, you know, try and save other animals much more directly and much more viscerally. So we started rescuing chickens and we have, you know, there had eight chickens in total and three of them are still with us and they are elderly girls now. They're almost about eight years old. And, you know, so yeah, amongst the oldest chickens in the world, probably rescued from farms. But the deal for me with animals was to first of all, recognize their individuality, but also realize that they recognize me and they have opinions of me and they relate to me in particular ways. And some of them like me more than others and some of them don't like me as much. So I think the deal with animals was to just recognize the bespoke, customized, individual nature of our interaction with them, not just as species, but as individuals. Mm-hmm. So I think ultimately for me, the deal is that I no longer think about ideas of a shared humanity, which was anyway a problematic idea. The idea of a shared humanity, like, you know, a lot of race scholars have talked about how there is nothing shared and universal about humanity. Because, it, you know, there's a risk that this erases difference, racial difference, it ignores or erases or assimilates difference. So race scholars have always had a problem with the idea of shared humanity anyway. But I think we need to go a step further and think about ideas of a shared animality. Now, what does that mean is something that I'm still probing and reflecting on. Because again, the idea is not to universalize ideas of animality, especially because there are such obvious differences between species and between humans and other species and between species that, you know, other species per se. So the idea is not to universalize, as race scholars have already warned us not to do in the context of race. But I think the idea of a shared animality is just at least, at the very least, a recognition that we are also animal. So I think the deal with animals for me is leading to the recognition, accepting the recognition, celebrating the recognition that we are also animal. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> and thank Thanks you for, for joining John. me today on the Deal with Animals podcast. It was really great to talk with you. Really fascinating information and perspective. And thank you again so much for coming. Oh, thank you so much for giving me the time to reflect on these things again. Every time I talk about these sorts of issues, I think it deepens understanding for myself. And it was great to have this conversation with you. Thank you for being such an amazing host. And I'm actually looking forward to all the other episodes in the series as well and the rest of the series. That was Associate Professor Yamini Narayanan, award-winning researcher and author of the recent paper Mother Cow, Mother India. You can find out more about Yamini's work at deacon.edu.au. If you missed the first two episodes in this series, definitely go back and give them a listen. The next episode will be coming out in two weeks, where we'll be talking with Dr. David Clough about animals in the Christian religion. And don't forget, if you're interested in starting a podcast in the animal welfare and advocacy space, sign up for my newsletter and find out about the upcoming project that I'll be working on to coach organizations with animal welfare missions in starting their own podcasts.
what do you think is the deal with animals? If you enjoyed this show and have any questions or comments about this episode or about the podcast in general, go to thedealwithanimals.com and leave me a message. This is also a great place to go if you're interested in being a guest or have an idea for a series or episode. And don't forget to follow and review wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps us become more visible to other listeners. I'm your host, Marika Bell. I'd like to thank Kai Stranskoff for the theme music and Natasha Matsark for help with editing. You can see links to guest book recommendations as well as their websites and affiliated organizations in the show notes and at thedealwithanimals.com. Thank you for joining me as we try to answer the question, what's the deal with animals? The Deal with Animals is part of the IROR Animal Podcast Network.